you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 as we continue with Sermon on the Mount. If you weren't with us last week, we, we were looking at uh, the authentic follower of Christ Jesus. And in our passage today, we're going to be uncovering some, some really pretty cool things that, that Jesus lays out there for us. So we've got to look around at what's going on in the world. And what Jesus calls us to is something different than what's going on in the world. We live in an ever-darkening society. Uh, Vance Havner, who is a professor of free preaching, um, used to say, he says, I used to say that society is going to the dogs, but out of respect for the dogs, I quit. So it's, it's, it's not getting a whole lot better. So what do we do about that? What, what is the church's role and what does it mean to be an authentic follower of Christ? And so Jesus does something in the Sermon on the Mount that, that kind of lays these things out. And our passage today is probably a familiar passage for you. You've probably heard that you're the salt of the earth and that you're the city on the hill and you're the light of the world. And, and you've probably heard these things, but let's put it in the context of what Jesus is doing. See, last week we kind of located who Jesus was and the fact that he was the long-awaited promise of God. So when he's teaching on this Judean hillside to this, this multitude, we don't know how many people were there that day, but as he's teaching, he is demonstrating the fulfillment of all that God ever promised and that our blessing and the blessedness of knowing him is the fulfillment of what God has done. But now we get into the middle section, which I believe that our passage today is what we'll call the thesis statement. Let's go back to, let's go back to grade school and grammar. You remember when when you were in like seventh, eighth grade, your teacher taught you how to write what they call the five paragraph essay. And when you're in seventh or eighth grade, the five paragraph essay was the most miserable thing that you could ever write because you're thinking, how in the world am I going to fill up five paragraphs? And then you get to high school and they're like, oh, you got to fill up like five to seven pages. Like, how am I going to fill up five to seven pages? And then if you go to college, you're like, well, here's one that's 12 to 15 and all this. And, and, and it just keeps growing and growing. So I'm not telling you to quit going to school so you don't have to write anymore. I'm bringing you back to where this goes. So when you wrote your five paragraph essay, what your teacher wanted you to do was give you this really start off bang sentence. That was kind of what you were going to be about. And then you wrote a couple of other sentences. And then the last sentence of, of your essay, uh, of that first paragraph was what they called the thesis sentence. It's basically, here's what I'm going to spend the next three paragraphs detailing for you. So you've got an introductory paragraph, you've got your thesis statement, I'm going to spend three paragraphs talking about how I know this statement's true or false, and then I'm going to give you another paragraph that says, see, I told you so, is basically what the five paragraph essay is all about. And so right there, you get the statement of what's going to happen. So Jesus spends the first 12 verses, the Beatitudes, uh, talking about what the authentic follower of Christ looks like, that blessedness. And then he gets us right here in our passage today and gives us the thesis statement of why this is important, what it means for us. And then he's going to spend the rest of the Sermon on the Mount saying, this is how you live it out. That This is how it looks to follow me. And so if you've got your place in Matthew chapter 5, and if you are able, I would like to invite you to stand with me as we reverence the reading of the Word of God together, looking at this passage, starting in verse 13. And as Jesus is teaching, he says, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? And it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your line light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we want to bring you glory. Because you're our God and you're our king. You are the one who made us. You are the one who sent your son to redeem us. So Lord, I ask you today that you show us how to be salt and light in a world and a society that needs salt and light. I ask you, Lord, that your spirit would continue to move in us. Lord, as we've worshiped you and as we've praised you, that, that through your scripture, through what you have put here for us in the word, in the word incarnate Jesus Christ and in our copy of the Bible, that you would show us exactly what it means to follow you. But Lord, that your spirit would show us what to do next as we follow you. Let it not just be we came to church and we sang some songs and we heard a sermon, but that we go ready with feet to act on what you have shown us. Lord, we love you. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus, in whose name we ask this. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we, we get into these metaphors that Jesus draws into his his hearers, his disciples. Now, remember we talked last week that, that he's, he's teaching disciples and, and, and it's safe to assume that it's more than just the 12, but all of those that have come to him, that have called upon his name. And, and my hope is this morning that if you're sitting here uh, under, under the, the wooden ceiling that we have in the, in the nice air condition, it wasn't just because it's hot outside, but that because you have come to Christ because you have come and, and called yourself a follower of him. If you haven't, there's going to be an opportunity at the end where we want to invite you to trust Christ because that's going to be the biggest game changer your life has ever known. And, and here's where Jesus puts the rubber to the road for us in using these household metaphors of salt and light. And, and he starts in this passage of scripture with a very, very direct statement. You are the salt of the earth. See, what Jesus is showing us is that the world needs salt. The world needs salt. Now, ha has anybody ever tasted grits that had no salt in it? You know exactly what I'm talking about when we see that some things just have to have some salt, right? Some things just have to have some salt. I was speaking with a, a man in our last church. He, was, he has congestive heart failure and he was in the rehabilitation hospital and he had ordered eggs for breakfast that morning and, and I was sitting there talking with him and I said, Mr. Jimmy, how are your eggs? He said, they're not any good. I said, why aren't they any good? He said, they took my salt and they took my hot sauce. And, and some things just need a little bit of, of seasoning or flavor. And I want you to know that that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't saying, man, you know what? If you're going to follow me, you're going to add flavor to the world. Trust me, the world has enough flavor. 
The, the, the world has about every kind of flavor, making Baskin-Robbins think, ah, 31 might not be enough. And we get into this passage and Jesus is putting something out there and he's saying, you are the salt of the world. We know that the world needs salt because Jesus wouldn't put us here if the world didn't need it. Jesus wouldn't tell us, you, his followers, you, his disciples, are the salt of the earth if there wasn't a purpose for it. Trust me, Jesus is not into the needless stuff. We are, the world is into needlessness. That's why we have stuff all over. And if you want to know how much stuff you have, move it. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> Somebody asked us this morning how things were going with the move. I said, we're not there yet. I said, we hadn't, didn't sleep two weeks ago because we're getting it all packed up. We didn't sleep this week because uh, we're trying to get it all unpacked. You know how much stuff you have and how much of it is needless. Jesus isn't into needless stuff. He's not going to leave us here if there's not a purpose. The world needs salt. Why? Because salt is a good thing. Salt is a good I know your cardiologist probably told you to stop with the salt. I get it. But in this world, in this life, where we are as followers of Christ, salt is a good thing. Jesus shows us here in this passage of the scripture. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? See, this salt metaphor that Jesus uses here, he's telling us that this, this world has some issues and for us to be beneficial to the world, we've got to understand some characteristics of salt. And what that means for you, whether you're in middle school, high school, college, young adult, middle-aged adult, senior adult, still here adult, wherever you are, there is some saltiness. And here's the thing, there's two things that you've got to understand about salt as it pertains not just to salt itself, but to you. And why Jesus would say, you're the salt of the earth and you have to be here. Notice that he says that you are the salt of the earth. You're the only one. You as a follower of Christ are the only salt of the earth. What does that mean? It means first and foremost that your life can preserve. Your life can preserve. That's one of the cool things about salt. It's not just sodium chloride mixed together. You remember uh, in, in school, you start learning all the little chemical things. And everybody here went to school and learned the periodic table and still has it memorized, right? Everybody? No? Okay, good. I know like three elements and uh, one of them's a Honda. So, so what happens here is in this passage, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, the sodium and the chloride. Now, all of us probably go home when we're hungry and we open something to find a, some food called a refrigerator. Years ago, it was called the icebox. My grandmother always called it the icebox and I asked her why one day and she said, well, because when I was little, they actually put ice in it to make it cold. It didn't cool itself. And so she still called it the ice box. But see, that coldness preserves the food. But in years gone by, and especially in a society like where Jesus was, was, was teaching, and where Jesus walked, and where Jesus taught, and where Jesus lived, you preserve things with salt. In South Africa, they have this stuff called biltong. Basically, it's South African beef jerky or whatever meat jerky it is. But the way that historically they have used this biltong is to go in and preserve it with a heavy, coarse salt. 
really, really salty. And that oversalting that meat would, would come in there and it would kill the clostridium, which causes botulism. Does anybody want botulism? No hands went up. I thought when the preacher said, let me see your hand, you raised it. I see that hand. Nobody wants botulism. Because there are preservation methods that have gone on for years and years and salt for the majority of human history has been the primary preservative. Translation, the salt kills the decay and the growth. It stops it. Jesus has placed you as a follower of him, as a disciple, as one who is called upon the name of the most high God to be saved by faith through his son, Jesus Christ, to slow down the death and decay of the world around us. We are salt. We, we are the salt. Now, that, that word the is so little, three letters, it's the definite article. And sometimes if you leave it out of a grade school paper, your teacher will say, oh, I need a definite article there. But here we get into this passage and Jesus doesn't say that, oh man, look over here and Herod's got this really cool palace and that, that's one of those salts out there in the world. Oh, you remember Caesar? He can give you some salt. No, he said, you are my follower and you are the salt because your life can preserve. Your life can slow the decay around how? By following Christ, by living out the example and putting forward the gospel that he has called us to follow. But not only does salt preserve, salt purifies. Your life can purify. Your, your life can purify. You ever put salt in a wound? It doesn't feel good. You know why it doesn't feel good? Because it's purifying that cut. It's going in there and it's making sure that whatever uh, bacteria could get into that cut is being purified. Man, it hurts. Oh, it hurts. Especially, especially paper cuts. Aren't they the worst? You, you get a paper cut and then you eat some fried chicken and the salt that's there. Oh man, your finger, you're, you, just, ah, you want to bite your finger off because that would feel better. It's purifying. That, that, that pain is associated with the purification process that salt provides. This is also how it preserves. Jesus says in this passage of scripture, you are the salt of the earth and you therefore are the one who can preserve and purify. I love the way John Stott says this. He says, the world decays like rotten fish or meat while the church can hinder its decay. God intends that the most powerful of all restraints within sinful society is to be his own redeemed, regenerate, and righteous people. Or, or, or R.V. RV Tasker said it this way, the disciples of Christ are to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. Anybody else notice the double standard of the world where morality just is in flux? It's changed. 23 years ago, our nation was in uproar when Ellen DeGeneres revealed that she was a lesbian. They pulled her sitcom off the national television syndication because, after all, we can't have that. You know who one of the most celebrated celebrities in all of Hollywood is right now? And many of you probably watch her show at four o'clock, three o'clock, whatever o'clock it comes on. Ellen DeGeneres. Why? Because the morality standards of the world have changed. 
But we as the followers of Christ are placed here because the world needs salt to purify and to preserve society. Not only that, but saltiness has to be maintained. Saltiness has to be maintained. A few years ago, there was a big trend that started rising with anybody that owned their own pool or, 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 or hotels or, uh, or uh, resort areas that had their own pools. They moved from chlorinated pools to saltwater pools. Now, if you have a saltwater pool and you leave it out there and it rains a few times and the sun gets out there, eventually that water is going to be less salty. The saltiness has to be maintained. Jesus says this, if the salt becomes tasteless. Now, we can describe what it means to be tasteless in society. I mean, you just go to Walmart and you see all kind of tastelessness going on. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about if it loses its characteristics of being salt, if it becomes so, um, so diluted that you don't even realize that it's actually salt. And so what Jesus is showing us here is that the world around us can contaminate. He says, if the, if the salt becomes tasteless, if it loses its main characteristic of what actually makes it salt, what good is it? It's useless. Remember that uselessness? Remember Jesus, we're talking about how it needs salt, so that means that there's a useful purpose. And Jesus said, okay, he's asking the question, are you useful or or useless? See, I have up here a couple of cups. One of these cups has some sand in it. The other one has some salt in it. Truth be known, I don't know which one's which. Looks white. Looks white. One of these is going to be really good on your tacos. The other one's going to hurt your teeth. One of these, when it's heated, will melt into and be absorbed by whatever food or, or, or solution you're trying to make. The other, when it's heated, will melt and become glass at some point. One of these... That's definitely sand. (laughs) That's definitely salt. One of these is good for something. One of them's not. Shaken, not stirred. Anybody going to use that today with lunch? Why? Why? Well, why aren't you going to use that? It looks exactly the same to me. If I were to walk up and down the aisles and love everybody, let everyone look through there, it's going to look exactly the same as it did before, just more in this cup. Why wouldn't you use that? Because it's been contaminated. Because it's been diluted. It is no longer able to accomplish the purpose that the salt initially was able to accomplish. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if you become contaminated and diluted and do not maintain your saltiness, if you are not following Christ with all that you have and allow the world to infiltrate and allow the world to take over, you have a one-track mind. I know the world and everybody tells you that men have a simple on and off switch. Women have this nice computer going on in their mind and women can multitask and the truth is your mind can focus on one thing at a time. 
That's why Paul tells us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. Focus on that so that you don't become contaminated salt. I'm not saying go and start some sort of little sectarian uh, community over here where there's no involvement in the world. Because how are we going to win a world for Christ if we're not involved in the world? Don't let it contaminate don't, don't let it, don't lose your saltiness. And Jesus comes in here in this passage and tells his disciples, if it becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except for to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. That means that you and I can frustrate growth. We can frustrate growth. See, one of the cool things about salt is its preservation ability. But if you were to go and go go to your yard this afternoon, just give you a little experiment. Go out there with a big old box of like ice cream churn salt, the kind of the rock salt kind. And just go into one section, one corner of your yard where, where you don't really want anybody to see it and just dump that whole box of salt out right there on your grass and just leave it there. And then water it, make sure, just like you would fertilizer. You know what's going to happen? The grass is going to die. It's, it's going to die because it's become poisoned. See, when you and I actually lose our saltiness, we can cause decay because we're no longer preserving. We are becoming useless, useless, useless. Useless is the aging process. We are becoming useless in the eyes of society as we become contaminated. Jesus says, what, what, what's the use? What, what good is it? It's no longer useful. But then he shifts metaphors. He shifts a little bit and brings us into an understanding of what it means to be the light. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. See, not only is... Does the world need salt? The world's dark. The world is dark. Constantly throughout scripture, the Bible uses the metaphor of darkness for this present age, darkness for this world where you and I live. And Jesus places us here in this world to be light. Why? Because light overcomes the darkness. Light overcomes the darkness. What do you do when you enter a room in your house? You turn on the light, right? You reach over there and you flip that nice little switch and because we have electricity, there it is. It overcomes the darkness. The darkness doesn't overpower it. That's what John says in John chapter one about the light who is Christ. If the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it because no matter how viciously evil the world around us gets, the light of Christ will shine. It will shine bright. Now, you and I might let it shine filtered with a shade because we've allowed the light to grow dim around us. That's what Jesus says. You're the light of the world. Look at what he says. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. Don't hide your light. Don't hide your light. 
A, a modern day metaphor of this is nobody goes out to, to Walmart or to Lowe's and buys a broom full of lamps and doesn't put light bulbs in it. Nobody puts the light bulbs in their lamps and not plug it into the wall. If you're going to be a source of light, be a source of light. Don't hide it. Hey, lampshades, make them look all decorative. Yeah, that's what we do. But let the light shine. Nobody places the light in their house and then turns it off and says, okay, stumble around in the darkness. If Jesus has placed us here as his lamp, as his light, he is asking us to shine bright. You remember what Jesus said to the churches in the book of Revelation? He said, look, I, I'm the one who holds the seven stars and the seven gold lampstands. And, and I've been walking around and seeing what's been going on. And to two or three of those churches, he says, I'm going to remove you as a lampstand for your community because you have been useless. You've been useless. Nobody's going to keep a, a, a headlight on their car, a bulb from the headlight on their car if the bulb is burned out. You're going to replace it so you can see to drive at night. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Don't hide your light. And he says, but a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. If that city's up there on the hill and you're out in the countryside in the dark, now, it's kind of hard to think through here because we're just around the outskirts of Atlanta and you can sometimes see the, the skyline lights, maybe not the buildings, but you can see the glow of the light from the city of Atlanta because it's right there. D.A. Carson uh, tells the story of going camping up in northern, uh, northern Canada where he's from and how at night you could hold a flashlight 85 miles away and be able to see it because it's so pitch black dark. 85 miles away, be able to see the glimmer of light. Follower of Christ, let me ask you this morning, can someone see the light of Christ shining in you that bright? See, we live in the political correct side of society. You don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You don't want to offend anybody. So, yeah, I'm a Christian. I went to church. Yay, Jesus. We get excited for everything, but when it comes to the name of the Lord our God, we let the light grow dim. It's kind of like we got that dimmer switch, you know? People put on, 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 on lights all over the place, so you get the light just exactly right, you know, exactly how you want it. On your cell phone, you can do that. If it, you can set your, your brightness on your phone so your screen shines bright or it doesn't shine so bright. It shines bright, it doesn't shine bright. Jesus didn't give us a dimmer switch for our faith. He said, shine bright where you are. Do not hide your light. Some of us need to come and repent now for trying to hide the light that Christ has placed in us. He says, shine bright where you are. Are you going to work this week? Shine bright for the light of Christ. Are you going to school here in a couple of weeks when it starts back? Shine bright with the light of Christ. Are you going to the hospital? Are you going to the doctor? Are you going to be sitting at a red light? Shine bright with the light of Christ. Why? Because Jesus says, you are my light. I am the light of the world. I have placed the light in you and I have set you in society that you would shine bright for me. Shine bright. Shine bright right where you are. Why? Because light attracts. Light attracts. So go outside and everybody's done this. You flip the porch light on to go get something from your car. And you come back to the door and you're standing there and the porch light's on and you, everybody here has done this. I know, I know you have. 
You've stood there and you've tried to figure out the best way to get through the door without letting the bugs in. You've done it. Everybody here. You've stood there at the door with your hands full and thought, man, I'm going to open the door. These bugs are going to go in. What in the because the light attracted them. He says here in this passage of scripture, he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Your actions reflect him. Your actions and my actions are a reflection of what we truly believe about God for better or for worse. Craig Rochelle wrote a book several years ago called The Christian Atheist. And there are some problems within the book, but his main thesis is true. The reason so many people in our country don't want to listen to our testimony of the gospel is because we proclaim that God exists, but live as though he doesn't. We proclaim that God is real, that God is true, but we live as though it's just us and what we want to do. That's atheism packaged nicely in the faith shambles. See, Jesus says, let your light shine in such a way that men will see your good works. And he's not saying, hey, look at me, look at how awesome I am. But that he would be able to see the gospel living in you, the gospel changing you, the gospel active in you where you are this week, this month, this year. And Jesus says, I'm placing you as my light because I want people to be attracted not to you, but to my father, not to you, but to the cross, not to you, but to the redemption that we offer because that redemption is the light that shines in us. You can reflect Christ Jesus in how you live, work, and play. That's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount's about. In, 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 in your finances, in your marriage, in, in, in your mind, in your heart, everywhere you go, where Jesus is drawing us in is this is what it means to live in a way that reflects him. Our actions reflect him. And this is the cool thing about it. It says that when people see this, see the gospel living in you, see your good works, he says they will glorify your father who's in heaven. See, this is one of the really cool things about the light metaphor and, and what Jesus is doing and what, what he's showing us about the power of the gospel in our lives. We sang a little while ago that we're giving ourselves away fully to God, fully to him and, and, and who he is and, and what he's going to do in our lives. And it says here in this passage of scripture that they will see this, see the power of the gospel working in our lives and they will glorify God. Why? Because God kindles worship. God kindles worship. I want you to imagine a, a, a little campfire. Now, if you could go through Boy Scouts or if you listen to Smokey Bear, because only you can start forest fire. Um, if you, you go in here and, and they teach you in, in Boy Scouts that when you build a fire, that what you're supposed to do is either to line it with rocks or to dig a little bit of a trench around there so that sparks as they, and embers as they come off the fire don't ignite something else. Well, see, the opposite is what we want to happen here with us. 
We want that others to be so close to the fire of Christ burning within our hearts, burning within who we are, that that kindle does happen, that those embers do spark and erupt and ignite in worship of the true, mighty, and holy God. And so we ask ourselves right now, are people worshiping God because of who I am in Christ? If not, then we've got to ask ourselves, am I being the light of the world? If not, we've got to ask ourselves, am I living out what my faith says I should be? Who my faith says I should be. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. In the end, being salt and light shows that together, salt and light proclaim the gospel. They proclaim the gospel. I want to close with this quote from um, from uh, John Stott. It's a little bit long, that's why I'm closing with it, but let me share this with you. He says, salt and light have one thing in common. They give and expend themselves, and therefore they are opposite of any and every kind of self-centered religiosity. Jesus calls his disciples to exert a double influence on the secular community, a negative influence by arresting its decay, and a positive influence by bringing light into its darkness. For it is one thing to stop the spread of evil, but it is another to promote the spread of truth, beauty, and goodness. Putting both of these together it seems legitimate to discern in them that the proper relation between evangelism and social action in the total ministry of Christ in the world today is a relation that perplexes believers today. Christians are set in secular society to hinder this process and God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt clusters our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it from going bad. And when society does go bad, we Christians do tend to throw our hands up in pious anger and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we not first reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It can't do anything else. The real question is, where is the salt? Where is it? In your life and the world around you right now, what influence of salt, the salt of Christ, are you being? Where are you shining the light of the gospel? Together they work together to bring holiness, to bring righteousness, to bring the redemption of Christ into a world that so desperately needs what we have to offer. So as we have a time of invitation Maybe this morning you're asking yourselves, what, where, where can I stand for the gospel of Christ? Shine right where you are. Don't hide. Seek to be the salt of the world.